شكرا واعطي الكلمه للسيد توني بلينك Saudi Arabia has embarked on a major effort, a historic effort, to modernize its economy, to modernize its society. And part of that is going to be attracting to Saudi Arabia the best talent from around the world to visit, uh, to pursue education, uh, to invest, to partner. This is part two of The Saudi Project, a series exploring Saudi Arabia's pursuit of global power. I'm Connor Boyle. In part one, we found out how oil and religion have influenced the development of the country up to this point. But in part two, I want to find out a bit more about why Saudi Arabia has got so interested in reinventing its image, and how the development of regional rivals like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar are influencing what Saudi is spending its money on. So the person I wanted to speak to was Quinn Slobodian. He's professor of history at Wellesley College and author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of Capitalism Without Democracy. He recently wrote a widely discussed and somewhat provocative piece in The New Statesman titled Why Saudi Arabia is Buying the World. I started off by asking him to tell us when did Saudi Arabia start becoming so concerned with its image? Why do you think there's been that change? Well, right. I mean, it's been decades now that Saudi Arabia is one of the world's biggest oil producers acts as this kind of spigot for global oil prices. And we're used to the idea of them as having this disproportionate weight in relation to their size uh, population-wise. But I think what's happened in the last few years, especially since uh, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, has um, sort of taken de facto leadership of the country, is that it's less just an image thing, but I think the basis of the Saudi economy is in the process of transformation. So the idea of Saudi as just being an oil giant or an oil producer almost exclusively and then making its investments abroad or investing in you know high-end real estate, buying American weaponry and so on, is now being augmented by this new idea of a kind of diversified local manufacturing economy, um, a local financial services economy, a local tourism economy. All of these things which before had been seen as kind of unnecessary given the ability to rely on uh, petroleum exports exclusively. So yes, I think it, it is true that there's been an attempt to sort of upgrade the image of, for example, the rights of women, you know, allowing women to drive, putting a female astronaut into space. There are these kind of superficial PR and kind of marketing moves. But I think the more important play is the structural transformation internally of the Saudi economy. And on that point, how would you define the sort of Saudi model of capitalism? I, I was quite intrigued in the piece you wrote in the New Statesman about the way in which Saudi is sort of trying to adopt or compete with the kind of Dubai model of capitalism. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, Saudi's model of capitalism and how it is different or similar to the Dubai model. Sure. Well, the extraordinary thing about Dubai is they sort of took what looked like a weakness and turned it into a strength, right? The apparent weakness would be that they didn't have and don't have a great deal of natural resources sitting under their soil to be extracted. They don't have the natural gas of Qatar. They don't have the oil of neighboring Abu Dhabi, which would make it look like they were kind of, you know, doomed to being the poor cousin in the United Arab Emirates and the kind of Gulf uh, coalition. But in fact, they've 
proven to be one of the most powerful economic actors. And how did they do that? They did that by sort of offering the space, the very small space of Dubai, such as it is, as a kind of empty terrain for the creation of kind of bespoke platforms for whatever kind of economic activity uh, mobile foreign investors were interested in. So if you wanted to, you know, invest in high-end real estate, well, they'll build you, you know, um, uh, an island in the shape of a country in, in the Red Sea. If you want to do internet and sort of information, telecommunication stuff for the region, then they create an internet city that has different rules than what exists outside of internet city. The Dubai International Financial Center, which has probably been the most successful example of this, was sort of designed from whole cloth by outside financial experts who were asked, you know, what are best practices in global financial services? If you were um, wanting to pick your kind of dream space for um, stock offerings and for and for trading and financial services, what would it look like? And then that was designed from whole cloth. So the the Dubai model is to sort of have your finger in, in many pots at the same time to be doing you know, a bit of finance, a bit of realist, a lot of real estate, retail for the region, entertainment, education, research. And for a long time, Saudi Arabia would have just looked at that and said, well, you know, and pity their need to kind of scramble to customize themselves for outside resort uh, investors. You know, they have to do that because they don't have what we have, oil. For the last few years, though, I think as I talk about it in the piece, I think there's sort of three big reasons why Saudi has chosen to uh, diversify and sort of orient themselves a little bit more towards this Dubai model. One is the fracking revolution in the United States, right? Um, really one of the world historical shifts over the last decade and a half or so is the United States going from a net petroleum importer to an exporter. The fact that they can get at oil in the shale fields and so on has transformed the relationship that the United States has to oil producing countries. It means that Saudi Arabia now doesn't quite feel like they have that leverage over the U.S. that they did have for decades. Second, I think, is the emergent conflict between China and the United States and Russia even more deeply in the United States. Saudi Arabia now has justifiably a feeling that they can kind of play both sides, that they can um, navigate this emergent sort of new Cold War dynamic with their oil wealth in a way that allows them to kind of get a bit from both sides. Why they want to make this less than just a new way of using the oil weapon is to some extent a taking, in the third factor, a kind of taking seriously, if not accelerating climate change as a kind of existential global risk, at least the way that that existential risk has started to filter down into the practices of um, powerful governments and international organizations. So if, as is increasingly likely, places like the European Union begin to just phase out internal combustion engines altogether, if the United States continues its big push towards renewables and tries to phase out the kind of wasteful and high carbon emitting um, forms of production that they've been reliant on over the decades, then Saudi Arabia justifiably is saying, you know, what will we do when our only export really of value is a kind of stranded asset? So we want to make sure that we're 
at the moment when there is still a huge global demand for oil, um, diversifying internally in ways that will make us poised for taking advantage of the new market niches with this, with the money that we have. And in, in that way, they look to Dubai. They say, well, what has Dubai done? Well, they're, uh, among other things, uh, a hub for, for global air travel. So huge orders put in for new um, wide body and narrow body passenger air, aircraft by Saudi Arabia over the last year or so. Dubai is a tourist destination, so they're doing tourism. Dubai is a place that has high-profile sporting events and neighboring Qatar, so they're doing high-profile sporting events. They're trying to figure out how they can still sort of take advantage of that demand for services in no in no small part from their own citizens and prevent you know Saudis taking their wealth uh, overseas and spending it on extravagant vacations elsewhere. Instead, they want people to do that there in the peninsula itself. So there's, I think, you know, there's economic, there's a lot of economic rationality behind this decision. I think there's a kind of medium term strategy that's being delivered to them by the many, many management consultants that they have on staff. And they're also taking seriously the way that global economic demand is going to go through some flux and shifts in coming years. I mean, I'm intrigued to know what your thoughts are on you know, Saudi look towards the West and the West say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're trying to cut down on, on fossil fuels and oil. And then Saudi try and invest in other areas like sport and entertainment. And then there's also, you know, people in the West say, we don't want your investment in those areas too, because of, you know, some well-founded you know, concerns around human rights and these issues like, but these sort of moral questions around sports washing and whether they're laundering their reputation. Do you think any of this is unfair to Saudi Arabia? Or, you know, we're all trying to understand how to navigate our investments with Saudi Arabia. How do you think the West should approach it? Well, I mean, I think it just depends on how you place your priorities. I think that, you know, for some people, they're in a position to sort of seek out an ethical life in any way they can and can kind of choose their, make their decisions based on that premise. And if if you have that luxury, you know, I mean, I'm a university professor. No one is compelling me to go and do business with companies and countries that I feel have acted unethically. You, I mean, you mentioned the kind of the PR uh, push of Saudi Arabia, but, you know, recall that their global image was almost at its nadir quite recently after Jamal Khashoggi. So, um, you know, they are working from a deficit there and they their interesting thing to watch is how they just sort of keep on raising the number until people seem to sort of have been told the number that is uh, high enough for them to forget their moral qualms. I mean, the the PGA uh, tie-up is a perfect example of this, where the head of the PGA was was invoking 9-11 um, until quite recently. And then when the number hit, then um, he changed his mind and, and, and forged forward with a partnership. So, I mean, at that level... It's just, you know, people have their have their own decisions that they have to make. I think that if you're thinking about more how we can uh, position ourselves for like a just energy transition at a global level, then I think the sort of major investments that they're putting into potentially breakthrough technologies like green hydrogen, the desalination programs that they're already way ahead on, the solar energy production that they're charging forward on, the huge money they're putting into electric vehicles through the, you know, Lucid, the um, American 
competitor to Tesla, which is so far, you know, a, a very, a very faint and distant competitor to Tesla. But those sort of, you know, the, the possibility that they will use this turn towards a diversified local um, manufacturing base to come up with what could be, you know, transformative technologies. I think that's something that, you know, should give more pause or 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 should, could allow someone to wonder whether or not such a possibility could override ethical issues that one has with the conduct of the Saudi Arabia the same way that people, you know, tend to swallow down their concerns that they have about the ethical conduct of the United States in many of its overseas foreign policy adventures and to nonetheless work with the American state and American government. So I think that I got some criticism, interestingly, from my piece from people who are from the region or work in the region who thought that this is all too convenient that when the um, a country like Saudi Arabia, a non-Western country, begins to um, build out the possibility of a kind of a green manufacturing base, that now the response of Western-based critics is to try to hit them with the human rights bludgeon, that, that this is actually just a, a, a cloaked concern about the loss of American economic superiority, in other words. And although I don't think I was doing that in the piece, I do think that that is often true of the way that concern over human rights, whether it's in Xinjiang or in the clearing out of Bedouin populations to build this futuristic city in the western part of Saudi Arabia, suddenly tend to pop up when there's a fear that some sort of competitive edge is being lost. So in other words, I don't have, I think, a kind of set of pointers, but I do think that it, it's worthwhile to be sort of wary about the moments in which ethics seems to kind of pop up and to see whether that doesn't dovetail with the personal strategic interests of whoever's raising the issues. And I, I saw the criticism of the piece, perhaps from uh, another direction, insofar as you, you were sort of suggesting that uh, Saudi Arabia was a climate behemoth, and it, you know its 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 crown prince has, has all these grand ambitions. Like, why should we expect Saudi Arabia to lead on on something which is probably not in their interest? Well, um, I don't think we would have expected it, which is why that's is why what makes this surprising, right? I mean, I think that there's a couple things to say there. One is that there is the difference between supply and demand, right? So just because there is still a large amount of oil reserves underneath, you know, Saudi sands doesn't mean that there will always be a demand for it. So I think what they're worried about is not the collapse of, you know, the exhaustion of their own reserves anytime soon. In fact, it will definitely take decades for that to happen, even at current rates of drilling and extraction. But it's more that the demand dies globally such that the price falls to a point that it is no longer possible to keep financing all of the you know, the subsidies that keep their populations happy, the the basic functioning of the Saudi state. So there is, I think, a kind of, it's not a, a pivot from an oil economy to a electric vehicle economy. It's important, as I mentioned, that it's Saudi Arabia and China that are really the ones pushing back at the end of the COP meetings to make sure that there is no sort of commitment written in for the wind down or the cessation of new drilling projects and, and the, the extraction of, of fossil fuels. They want to make sure that it keeps on pumping. And so long as they can still profit from a high enough global price, which um, a friend of mine who works in this field said is about $80. So if the $80 barrel limit gets breached downward, then things become problematic for servicing the debts, paying all of the uh, 
contracts that they're signing here from week to week to week. So I think it's more of a kind of wise strategy of the kind that anyone would probably come out of a business school case recommending, which is, you know, keep on doing the primary economic activity that is most profitable for you. But at the same time, um, use that surplus wealth you have right now, rather than just on things like real estate assets abroad, or and just high high profile spectacles like um, golfing and soccer events, use them to try to expand at what might be growth technologies, both domestically and globally. So I don't think that it's, you know, nobody thinks that that EVs will are the future for for Saudi Arabia exclusively. But if things keep on going as they are, then they could indeed start exporting technologies that they're developing around green fusion, green hydrogen, and so on in ways that would be potentially extremely profitable in terms of intellectual property. I think that the surprise that that people have about Saudi Arabia often is that they are acting in this way sort of unilaterally, right? That's the climate behemoth mention that I that I use in the piece is that I think everyone assumed for the last 25 years that if we were going to get to a kind of just energy transition, it would happen through people gathering at places like COP meetings, doing things like Kyoto, doing things like Paris, and everyone agreeing that, you know, as the phrase goes, global problems require global solutions. What's interesting right now is we're seeing between the Bidenomic push on IRA and green subsidies, the European carbon border adjustment taxes, the Saudi um, push into kind of green technologies. These are actually um, projects of economic nationalism rather than kind of global economic agreement or global economic governance. But there are people who are looking twice at this and saying, hmm, Maybe it's actually this approach that will be more effective. Maybe getting the countries to compete against each other engaged in you know, what some people have called even a kind of a green arms race might actually lead to the outlays of state investment that are actually required to you know, compel private investors and so on to move into those areas that they previously avoided because they're worried about risk and so on. So that's, I think, the surprise. The surprise is first, that Saudi Arabia would start doing something they hadn't been doing for decades. And then second, that it could counterintuitively be actually one of the paths to uh, a global um, end state that, that might be actually more favorable than one that would have been arrived at without their unilateral action. That's a possibility. Going towards the end, I think one point you make is that Saudi is very well placed to be able to go at breakneck speed with these new technologies and these big investments mm-hmm. because it doesn't have, you know, democracy to get in the way or the slow process of getting a, you know, public consent in order to do these things. As technology increases in in speed and we're seeing all these developments in AI and and and, and biotechnology, do you think the countries with uh capitalism without democracy will be potentially the quickest to gain because they don't have democratic safeguards in order or or obstacles in order to do things quickly. I think that's definitely possible and even likely. But I think that the thing that needs to be remembered, especially in the case of Saudi Arabia, is that this agent, it's not so much either the state or the market. And then, you know, the market is the space of capitalism, the state is the space of democracy, and we need to choose between them. In fact, the agent or the actor in all of this is the public investment fund, right? Which is the sovereign wealth fund. It's the one that's making 
all of these decisions. Um, MBS is its titular head. He vastly expanded the staff when he took over. He staffed it with uh, many of the Saudis who had gone abroad to the UK, the United States, and elsewhere to study in the early 2000s and then came back. It's modeled on not, you know, it's not necessarily modeled on non-democracy per se. It's modeled on places like Norway, right? Norway's sovereign wealth fund, Singapore's sovereign wealth fund. Singapore's status as democracy is questionable, but, you know, they do have contested multi-party elections. And I think we, we in the United States especially, the UK too, it's kind of hard to get your head around the importance of this actor because we don't have equivalents, right? We don't have these enormously well-endowed, you know, para-state organizations that are helping to kind of guide the future of the economy. What we do have is enormous institutional investors, right? We have asset managers who have their their hands involved in in, in many parts of the domestic economy, but they don't have the vision or they don't have the ability to act sort of in the autocratic and sort of single-minded way that a sovereign wealth fund can, right? I mean, look at Larry Fink's attempt to sort of pivot to ESG with BlackRock a couple of years ago or a year ago, ran into shareholder activism and resistance, a lot of legal concerns about fiduciary responsibility. He himself disavows it almost, almost after six months or a year. So those are things that are not so much artifacts of democracy, but you could say that something like shareholder value is the primary directive for a money manager. That's a part of the way that we've designed capitalism. So it's less we have democratic capitalism, they have capitalism without democracy. We have built in a sort of a short termism into our version of capitalism, which makes it impossible for us to think in the medium term, in the long term, the way that arguably something like the Vision 2030, you know, if all of their bets pan out, was able to do. So I think that's something to reflect on, too. Thanks for listening to episode two of The Saudi Project. In part three, we'll be taking a closer look at Saudi Arabia's complex relationship with sport. Become a member of Intelligence Squared for just £4.99 a month on Apple Podcasts or by visiting intelligencesquared.com membership to enjoy the full series of The Saudi Project all in one go. This episode was hosted and produced by Connor Boyle. Thanks again for all your support.